0: Hello there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Amanda Walsh. She's Associate Director of Government Relations at Australian Catholic University. She's here to talk about her new book, Globalization, the State, and Regional Australia. It's published by Sydney University Press in 2018. Amanda, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, it's great to have you on. So, Amanda, the first question uh, is a simple one, but also... An important one uh, and maybe not so simple, Um, what is globalization?
1: Yeah, that is a very good question, and it's um it's both simple and really complex. Um, and one of the things I I do in the book is to try to spend uh, as little time as possible and as practical, um, dealing with the issue of what is globalization. And essentially, I take an economic definition. Um, we all know that globalization has spread and crept into many aspects of our lives. Um, but at its heart, globalisation is an economic phenomenon. Uh, and so that's that's the take um, that I rely on in the book. And that enables me to then, um, you know, examine um events in Australian society and politics and the economy and to look at what happens at the regional level as well
0: yeah I think most people would probably you know know globalization when they see it in the Australian context. How has Australia done you know responding to and contributing to globalization
1: uh-huh. Australia uh, I think has had quite an interesting journey down the path of globalization Um, uh, partly because Australia was really at the vanguard of encouraging and enabling globalization back in the 1980s Uh, so at the same roughly the same time that the Reagan administration in the US and the Thatcher government in the UK were really um, were really opening doors for uh, economic neoliberalism Uh, we we had a government in Australia that was doing the same thing although it's uh, its politics were quite different
0: one of the interesting things about the Australian story and and you you know you say that since the mid-1980s successive Australian governments have contributed to globalization you know this wasn't just one side of the aisle was it
1: no, not at all. And um, I mean, one of the things that sets Australia apart is that it was a left of centre government um, that really paved the way for globalisation um, to take root in Australia. And that, that was the government of Bob Hawke, which was first elected in 1983. Uh, and so that meant that the Australian experience of globalisation was um, in some ways quite different to the experiences in the US and the UK, um, there was a much stronger emphasis in Australia on social safety nets, um, on ensuring um, a living wage, on, I suppose, easing the transition for workers and entire industries um, in adjusting to, you know, some of those really big um, economic and industrial shocks um, that arrived with globalisation.
0: So you look at Australia as a whole, and then you also have a series of more local case studies. Tell us a little bit about you know why you wanted to use case studies to to kind of tell your story, mm-hmm. why are they useful, and are there any limits to using case stories, case mm-hmm. studies
1: yeah um well, case studies were uh, were not really a- an option for this study they were essential and that's because as I'm sure many people who deal in um, regional studies will know um, the data sets often just don't exist for particular geographical locations or they don't exist over time and that's certainly the situation I faced in um, examining the Shoalhaven region um, of New South Wales uh, and so once I had gathered the data data that was available, um, it was very easy to see where the gaps were and the only way to fill those gaps um, was by um, getting out there and talking to people, um, selecting case studies and going to speak to people who worked in particular um, sectors or enterprises for a long periods of time and and people who'd been working with them um, within um, you know various arms of government as well. so the case studies were essential um, to this book. The book couldn't have been written um, without the case studies and all of the people who contributed.
0: you know w- one of the great lines in the book uh, that you say is that you know manufacturing isn't what it used to be. What's been the story of Australian manufacturing? kind of over the last three decades, and and surely China must be part of the story, no?
1: Yeah, well, uh, manufacturing um, is one of those, it's one of those iconic industries in any advanced economy these days. And that's certainly the case in Australia and also in the region where I conducted the case studies. I looked at um, um, agricultural manufacturing through the dairy sector. Um, I looked at paper manufacturing and then ethanol manufacturing. Um, But taking a larger view um, from across Australia, the story really has been one of decline in employment in particular since the 1980s. Um, and that has, that has come about largely because of, um, you know, a fall in output um, created by a rise in competition in developing countries. And China is, you know, is the obvious um, example here. Um, you know, there are other other countries that are engaged in manufacturing as well, such as India. But for Australia, I mean, China has really been a double-edged sword for Australia. We're very fortunate in that um, we don't, suffer from the same kind of trade imbalance that the U.S. does with China. Um, we have a good, strong two-way trade relationship, um, but the fact is we have lost a lot of manufacturing jobs to China since the 1980s, and particularly you know, in the last 15 years.
0: Tell us a little bit about the, you know, the local study that you conducted, and, and tell us about Shoalhaven. You have a personal connection to aspects of that story, right?
1: Yeah, look it is um it is very personal and and the book came about um simply as a result of me wondering fairly idly over time uh about the changes that I saw in the region uh where I grew up. Um, you know, regular visits back to visit to visit family um, gave me the opportunity to see change over time um, and to try to work out why, you know, essentially, as I say in the book, why were all the cows disappearing? Where were the dairy farms going? Um, where were the jobs going at the local paper mill? Uh, and, you know, like many families in the Shoalhaven, mine had been closely engaged in those industries over generations. You know, my grandfather was a dairy farmer. Um, on the other side of my family. Uh, My other grandfather worked in the paper mill and he did that at the same time that my mother worked there. So, you know, these are multi-generational industries. They were important for social reasons, but also critically for for economic reasons for this region. Um, And so it was really a case of just sitting down and identifying those iconic industries and working out what had happened to them um, over the course of the last 30 or so years.
0: You know, even for those people that aren't Super familiar with the Australian manufacturing sector. I think you know the the auto manufacturing industry may, may be the, the the sector that's most well known. You know how 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 does it look? You know when you talk to people or when you look at a region that has changed so much, not just economically, but but what about the kind of psychological and cultural change that comes when entire industry is just changed or, or moved overseas?
1: It's um it's something that I think has really um. Rocked a lot of Australians and certainly resonated with all Australians, the demise of the automotive manufacturing industry. Uh, and, um, you know, our, our former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd once famously said that I don't want to be Prime Minister of a country that doesn't make anything. Uh, and that, that was a comment prompted by, um, you know, the, the swirling drama around the automotive manufacturing industry in Australia, um, which over a relatively short period of time just withered and died. Um, it, It could not compete with, um, manufacturers in other countries where, you know, wages are lower, but it also lost out, you know, once those global value chains got longer and longer and stretched around the globe, um, Australia became an ever smaller part of those value chains until we reached a point where, you know, the, um, the large multinational Corporations that are our automotive manufacturers decided that it was no longer economic um, to make vehicles in Australia, and that um, that prompted a really big national debate about the entire manufacturing sector in Australia. I don't think we've come up with um, with any compelling uh, answers to you know what should we do, um, but it's certainly a subject that um, is never far from the surface in in politics in this country.
0: I want to ask you about the dairy industry. You talk about the decline in state assistance to the dairy industry and the rise of the productivist agriculture. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened in that industry?
1: The dairy industry in Australia um, was in many ways very fortunate. At a time when other parts of the agricultural economy um, were having to face globalization and competition, the dairy sector was still able to rely on support from the state and that support was there for very good reasons i mean um you know fresh fresh drinking milk is one of those things that cannot easily be substituted by import and and so there was considered to be you know good reasons for um ensuring that dairy farmers could you know afford to maintain their herds milk them and send the milk to suppliers that uh, changed in the year 2000, uh, when the last remaining elements of support for dairy farmers were removed. And that, um, instantly triggered, um, a quite dramatic cascade of economic effects through, um, the agricultural economy in Australia. Um, essentially, if you, if you track where the money went, um, the money that had gone previously to dairy farmers, you know whether from government or um, from you know the manufacturers they sold to that money moved further along through the supply chain um, and became concentrated with the milk processes and especially with the two big supermarket chains in australia um, so I, I don't think um, certainly. Um consumers don't feel that they've benefited even if prices have dropped because um we are very conscious of the fact that it is dairy farmers who are really paying the price now for for any improvement in you know the shelf price of milk in australia uh, and it's really come to a fairly critical point in terms of the number of farms that are closing um and the fact that the remaining farms are having to get much, much bigger. There's a lot more mechanisation. I mean, the the idea of the family dairy farm in Australia—it's not dead yet, um, but it's really in danger.
0: Amanda, last question before I let you go. You know, one of the interesting things that you point out in the book is that the benefits of globalization tend to generally be positive for the country as a whole, but the negative effects tend to be highly localized, uh, hitting particular industries or enterprises or communities. What has the Australian Government done to to deal with some of these you know negative effects, and what might a better regional policy look like in Australia?
1: Trying to deal with those localised effects um, of globalisation and industrial change, um that's a really big challenge for any government. Uh, you know the the approach in Australia has generally been to institute some sort of, industry support package or community support package, um, which runs for you know, a relatively limited period of time. Um, we've seen that done in um, communities uh, which... Had hosted a lot of automotive workers. Um, we've seen it happen in other communities around Australia as well. Um, now, you know, studies have been done on those programs and shown that there are mixed results. Uh, we probably need a little more time to be able to um, tease out all of the results over a longer period. But um, you know, the fact is that particular um, communities and particular geographical locations do experience globalization differently. Um, they don't all um merit for whatever reason um assistance from government as they try to negotiate their way through, um, and one of you know one of the things that governments have really emphasised in this era of globalisation and neoliberalization is that regional communities should help themselves. You know there should be a greater spirit of of entrepreneurship and innovation, um, and the self help mantra can be pretty insulting to communities that, through no fault of their own, um, are facing really big. Um, industrial and economic shocks. Um, you know that that sort of glib approach to self-help for communities um, isn't always very helpful. And there, are, I think there are better ways to go about it. Um, one of the things that my book um, urges quite strongly is that the Australian government um, start uh, a white paper process, which is sort of the um, preeminent um, process that governments go through in Australia when they're tap- really large, complex problems, typically in foreign affairs, um, economics, trade, international security, those sorts of issues. But, I, you know, I think it's it's well past time um, that we took a really sophisticated um, look at uh, the intersection between regional development and globalisation and came up with a much better way to support communities and industries.
0: Amanda, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Amanda Walsh from Australian Catholic University. Her new book is Globalization, the State and Regional Australia. It's published by Sydney University Press in 2018. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.